0: This is episode 211 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Consequential Strangers with Melinda Blau. Hello everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we'd like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take I'm so pleased to welcome a new friend to the podcast today. Her name is Melinda Blau, and we're going to be talking about her book, Consequential Strangers, Turning Everyday Encounters into Life-Changing Moments. Gotta love that. So listen up. She co-wrote that book with psychologist Karen Fingerman, and I'll introduce Melinda She's a journalist and author of 15 books and over 200 articles. Her beat, so to speak, is relationships, and she covers the spectrum from consequential strangers to soulmates. She's probably best known for her books on families and has become known as the family whisperer. And in all her years of studying relationships, she has concluded, if you're good at relationships, you're good at life. And I agree. And now you know why I have her on podcast. So welcome to the show, Melinda.
1: So thank you for having me. It's just wonderful to, to meet you again. And I uh, to call you my friend.
0: Yeah, nice. We're new friends now. So the book talks about consequential strangers. And you also talk in the book about weak ties, or acquaintances. So what do you mean by those terms? And why are they worth writing about?
1: Okay, well, the term weak ties was coined by a sociologist in the late 70s, Mark Granovetter. And really, consequential strangers, weak ties, and acquaintances are all pretty much synonyms. The term consequential strangers was coined by my co-author, Karen Fingerman. And I heard about it. uh, She had sent me a bunch of her papers. And as the word consequential strangers came out of my printer, which was the title of one of our papers, Mm. I just was so struck by, it was such an oxymoronic term, how could strangers be consequential? But they actually, the words belong together. So I always define consequential strangers or weak ties or acquaintances as anyone outside of your family and close friends is a consequential stranger. So if you imagine all your relationships on a continuum from stranger, who you don't know at all, to soulmate, who, you know, hopefully you're bonded for life, consequential strangers occupy the greater part of that continuum. So it's everything up to where you start calling people a friend. You know, in the book, when I talk about, well, how do you know what's a consequential stranger? How do you know what's a friend? Uh, I sort of jokingly, but it's serious. I, I say it's kind of the same definition that uh, the Supreme Court gave about pornography. You know it when you see it. <laughs> you know what a friend is, and you know what an acquaintance is. is. Um, you know, a friend you probably uh, invite up for the weekend, an acquaintance you would have brunch with. You tend to, this is the interesting thing about relationships. You don't save all your intimacies or your intimate revelations for your friends. Sometimes it's easier with a consequential stranger, say someone you meet at the gym or someone you know from the office or somebody that you know on your commute, you may take the same train every day. Mm -hmm. You may end up telling them about a problem with your spouse or something that's bothering you about your child. And because that person is not related to anyone else that you're intimate with, you kind of feel safe saying it there. It's not going to get back to your husband or your child or whatever. So, you know, in the book I talk about, you know, we tend to to think of our spouses as our quote, significant others. But really, there are many other significance in our lives. And sometimes... They're people that we just see at a cocktail party once a year, a Christmas party, for example. This is the time of year that you may go to a friend's Christmas party that you've been to for years. And there's the same woman that you've spoken to who's an interesting professor, or she has a guy who is an archaeologist in Egypt and he just comes home for the holidays. And these are people that you actually look forward to seeing again, but you might not speak to them. In between, um, I know I met somebody like that at a cocktail party. He, he traveled a lot to India. I never in my life thought I would be going to India. But sure enough, an opportunity fell in my lap where the proverbial uh, offer I couldn't refuse. And a friend had offered to take me to India. All I had to play was half the plane fare. So, of course, I said yes. And I remember th- this person that I had met at the this- a cocktail party. I called my friend, whose party it was, and I said, "Do you have so and so's number? I would really like to call him. I'm going to India." Well, it was the best thing that I could have done because he set me up with his relatives. I ended up playing tennis in India, which I never would have done <laughs> as a tourist. So it, it was, you know, it's those those in the book. I call them this this fleeting relationships. Yet they can really be meaningful and consequential in your life. And that's why I love the term. So what
0: about people that you meet only once, but have a significant impact on your life? And I'll give an example here. My first son was born in Belgium, and the woman that I shared the hospital room with uh, was a very kind person, and she helped us name our son. And so, of course, every time I talk to people about his name and how we came up with it, blah, 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 I always think of her. I only met her once, and maybe this goes in the fleeting relationship that you're talking about, but does she fall into the category of a consequential
1: stranger? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it it can be that momentary connection. It can be, even be, I'll never forget. I I met uh, a woman at Starbucks. I'm contemplating a a book right now about much, much older women. I tend to, especially since I wrote consequential strangers, I tend to talk to strangers and they quickly become consequential strangers. (laughs) I, I was watching this woman. Um, And she was struggling, I think, to open. She was probably in her 90s. And she was struggling to open the sugar packet because she had very arthritic hands. And I said to her, can I help you? And she said, oh, honey, that would be so nice of you. And we sat there for the next probably only a half an hour and... She talked in great detail about what it was like to get older and to become invisible. And it that always stayed with me. And had I not met her, I might not have understood the invisibility of older age, especially for women, as much as I did from actually talking to that woman at that moment. And so it it really made an impact on my life. Yeah, I love the subtitle of your book,
0: right, the, about this idea about life changing, right? Maybe not in a profound way, sometimes in a profound sometimes way. Sometimes yeah. yeah, but, sometimes. but you know, those things that you remember, right? And, of course, those people may not realize that you you treasure their memory, right? That your mind goes back right. to them surprisingly frequently,
1: right? Right. Well, you know, because of that, I tend to now, now that we can, I tend to now, even though sometimes people think I'm a little crazy, I say, you know, I might want to talk to you again about this. Would you mind? I'll give you my cell phone. Would you mind giving me yours? I don't think this woman had a cell phone. I think she was right. uh, to me, the cutoff right at this age is around 94. They don't have cell phones. <laughs> or they might have them, but they don't have use.
0: But next year it'll be
1: ninety three.
0: That's right, That's or right. the other way around, I guess. No, the other way around.
1: <laughs> um, and and uh, you know, if I should live that long, I'll have a cell phone when I'm one hundred and five. So you know, right? so Exactly.
0: Really- yeah. Exactly.
1: <laughs> The thing that's wonderful about Consequential Strangers, many people have said to me after they read the book that it really changed the way they walk through the world Yeah. and that they were more aware of these peripheral people. I describe them as on the blurred edges of our consciousness. So they tend now to look at the name tag when you're in a restaurant and call the person by the name. And it not only makes the other person feel good It makes you feel really good because you're you're really connecting with that person. It's not a profound connection. You're not going to, you know, walk off into the sunset with that person. But for that moment in time, and let's face it, our lives are made up of small moments, not cataclysmic events. And so those small moments are really important. There were so
0: many heartwarming stories in the book. I, I just really enjoyed reading about people being kind. To each other, you know, which mm-hmm. often happens in those fleeting moments. You also talk in one chapter about, you know, bad things that can come of casual relationships. Right. Okay. But, but you do mention toward the end of the book that one of the goals of the book was to bring these solidarities out of hiding. And right. I, I wanted to ask you if your sense is that we don't acknowledge these relationships enough.
1: I'm not so sure it's about whether it's acknowledging the relationships. I I think you're talking more now about the times we're in, which Mm -hmm. admittedly the book was written over a three year period between 2006 and 2009. And to show you even how things had changed during that small time, we were just starting then to have social media. I can't remember the title of this book, but there was a book out about how we were starting to sort ourselves into uh, not literally gated communities, but, but something like that concept. Yeah. And it was starting in 2009, 2010 and social media has, has fed a lot of that because we can find people that echo, echo our opinions and if we want to be right, we just talk to those opinions. And I put right in quotes when I say that. I think it's unfortunate. And and certainly the last uh, administration of the United States really fomented that those divisions. And, and that's really sad because I do think that it's harder for people to listen to each other when they don't agree. And it was never this bad. And. I think also the hope, though, this is why I say it's not the relationships. The hope is in relationships, because in the chapter that you talk about, um, I believe I was referring to the work of uh, the psychologist at Harvard. She developed this implicit attitudes test, yes. which shows how all of us have these unknown, unknown to ourselves, prejudices we tend to prefer even women, prefer men over women, young over old. None of this is surprising. We all know this intuitively, but they found this out by flashing words and pictures and images. And without even thinking, we react more to the dominant person. So it's the male, you know, the white as opposed to the black. And what this, the, the antidote to that is to know a person, Yeah. To, to get to know. I know they've done a lot of work with Arabs and Israelis. When they put Arab and Israeli teenagers together and they, they, they find the, the hidden solidarities, they both like the same kinds of music. They like the same kinds of foods. And then they see that whatever they're looking at is skin and ideology, but it's not the human. And the humans are more alike than different. And so I think the concept of consequential strangers, the idea of, you know, literally and figuratively reaching across the aisle is very, very important because one of the things that Granovetter found out when he first was discussing loose ties is that, for example, you're more likely to hear about a job opportunity from somebody you hardly know. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the people that you live with and that you love and that you Go to a house of worship with that you th- those sort of posse's that we have in our lives and our little groups.
0: That's a great word.
1: <laughs> those people think the way you do. They know what you knew. They watch the same movies. They listen to the same podcasts, and so they know what you know. They're not going to know about a job in another country or in another company. And Granovetter was actually surprised about this. And that's when he first started, his paper was called The Strength of Weak Ties. So there's an unbelievable bounty of information, of experience, of perspective that you get from talking with and relating to someone who's different and that's why it's very regrettable what what has happened so much in this country and honestly i wish i could write a book on how to fix that but i don't that wise i am not <laughs>
0: yeah, well, to go further down this rabbit hole, I want to sorry to do this to you. I want to quote your own uh, book at you. There's a comment at the end of the book that seems really profound to me. Uh, so bear with me. okay if If the very differences that make consequential strangers so valuable to us can also be a barrier to relationships, the solution it would seem is to invite a variety of people into our lives. If we can't get past our differences, we might at least come to feel more comfortable with them and understand what our own limited experiences can't possibly teach us. Our survival might depend on trying. It's really, really, it is complicated sentences, but I think this is really an important point. And yesterday I was struck by a survey that was stuck in front of my face uh, that was done of fairly young Americans across political parties. One of the takeaways was that some seventy percent of young Democrats said that they would not date a person of a different political party. Wow! That yeah, I, I get it. Wow. Right? I, I know it's our I know it's our thing right now that we're like we're only going to be with right thinking people. Right, but, right. But at my advanced age. I guess I would caution people to be a little careful about that, that you may turn out to have more in common than you think and right. to and to kind of classify people like that and put people into a no date category. It, and of course, it's hard to know, right? It's a survey. So are people more likely to say that they won't when they will, or in fact, are there a lot more, is it a much higher percentage of people who wouldn't date? They're just not willing to admit that on a survey. I don't know. Right. But yeah, I was interested in your thoughts about that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's it. People are fairly unreliable. Yeah. Right. That's true. Well, and also they tend to, this is interesting because as I said, I looked at research, around 2006 to 2009. And at that time, the millennials were young, and they were more open mm-hmm. than what you're indicating. And I'm assuming it's the same cohort, because you're talking about people that are dating, those are the millennials. Mm-hmm. And they th- that was what was so wonderful about uh, that generation, at least initially. Now, things have changed, you know, this is um, in, in another book that I wrote Family Whispering, I talk about the fact that we're buffeted even in our own families by three elements. One is your own individuality, what you bring to the table. Two is the relationships in the family and how they affect you. But three is your context.
0: hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And, you know, the families in in, uh, 1900 dealt with something different than families in 2021. And the millennials are now have come out of a a political time where we're still in it, this very divisive political time. And maybe that openness where they were going in such a great direction, you know, they were breaking down. You ask a millennial about their sexuality and they they were very comfortable say, I don't know. Mm. I could be bisexual. I haven't acted on it, but, you know, I mean, they had this (laughs) breaking down of barriers. And so I was very hopeful about the millennials at the end of the book. Now I'm not so hopeful, Mm. (laughs) you know, but again, you're right. Surveys sometimes, especially teenagers and young people tend to answer what they think they should answer. Yeah. Most psychologists will say that people are tremendously unreliable (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to self-reporting, you have to trick them in some other way. That's why a lot of the new studies in psychology are doing when they ask people, how do they spend their time? If you just ask them that, they'll say, oh, I read, I do this, I do that. If you make them track it on a, you know, on a computer, that, now I can do this with programs and you make them check in all the, their time, their time use looks very different. Oh, three hours went by and I was looking at my phone, you
0: know. Right. I remember going to, this was many, many years ago, going to listen to a talk by the uh, publisher of the San Diego Union Tribune. And he was talking about what surveys tell them about what people read of the newspaper. You right. know, it's like, oh, it was read the front page. Blah blah blah. He said, if you actually track, well, now they could do this digitally, right? Where people are spending all their time on the which, like, which pages people are spending the most time on? It was sports, 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 sports. sports. Right. right, right. <laughs> and in mm-hmm. a way, in a way, that's kind of reassuring, right? I mean, uh, when was um, that though? It was it was uh, quite a while ago, but but he was talking about the transition from paper to digital and the kind of information then that you can get because of that. Right. Which, you know, which is a topic in and of itself. That's kind of interesting because, yeah, people what they tell you what they're reading. Yeah, it's not really what they're reading.
1: (laughs) But, you know, one of the things I want to stress about is about the surprising aspect of consequential strangers. I recently moved. I've been here before, but I moved to Paris. And um, my partner's a diplomat, so I have to make my own life during the, during the day. And I'm a writer, and writers don't get out much if they're writing. Mm-hmm. So I really make it, uh, again, partly because I wrote the book and I know how important it is. I I collect consequential strangers wherever I go. And because I've lived in a lot of places, I have a lot of consequential strangers. But I want to tell you about one of them that um, it's just such a great story because I was walking my dog one day and somebody was walking an adorable King Charles, a Cavalier King Charles puppy. Mm -hmm. It was about four or five months old. Well, any puppy is cute, but they are exceptionally cute. Uh And so of course I stopped, I barely even looked at the owner. I just, oh my God, that puppy is so cute. And I bent down and then I looked up and the owner was this very pretty young woman. I imagined she was 25. So she could have been my granddaughter. We ended up walking our dogs together in the park, making dates so the dogs could play. <laughs> and then she, she's now in graduate school. I ended up going to the French Open with her and a friend. And I mean, I look at the pictures of me. I'm I, I think I told you this the other day, I'm 78. So there was quite a big difference. But they they had the best time with me. We went to the French Open. So here was it was intergenerational. Mm-hmm. She is from California, her a very interesting background. Her father is Egyptian and her mother is Colombian. Mm. So there were all these new wonderful things. That I could learn from her, even though she was so much younger than than I was. And, you know, we had a lot of things in common, Paris, complaining about the French, uh, (laughs) going going to the French Open. So anyway, I got a holiday card from her yesterday. And one of the first things in the book is Karen Fingerman did one of the ways she demonstrated consequential strangers was through greeting cards. And it was a really fascinating study because if you want to know who your consequential strangers are and you send out holiday cards, there's your list. Yeah. The top are going to be a couple of people in the family, but the rest are people you want to keep in touch with that you met at work, at the gym, and when you went to Belgium. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. the people that you want to keep in touch with that were once part of your life, And so I just got this holiday card from from Sarah. And uh, can I read it to you? Of course. It's great. She says, to my favorite writer and favorite diplomat, my partner's a diplomat, and Ralphie's best friend. (laughs) Living in the U.S., I always looked forward to the holiday card season, even more for the day I could finally send them myself. As a new adult, so now she's about 26, I was not sure when that would be appropriate, when the appropriate time would be. But after the wild pandemic we've been dealing with, I thought that now is the time, if any, to spread the holiday joy. I hope you three are enjoying yourselves and we will see each other soon. Lots of hugs and doggy kisses, Sarah and Ralphie. I was, that was so moving to me. First mm-hmm. of all, it was such a beautiful sentiment, yeah. the idea of. Someone who loved when probably her mother did, you know, holiday cards. And when could she do her own? Mm -hmm. Just there were so many layers of it Mm -hmm. that I said, oh, my God, such joy. And that's a consequential stranger right there. Mm -hmm. So that's why I say you can't just call someone your significant other. You have a lot of other significance. Mm -hmm. And Sarah is definitely one of mine.
0: No, that's really lovely. What a great connection. That's what I mean about the book was just full of. You know, these really heartwarming stories. And you also mentioned in the book, Fairly Early, a group that's really dear to my heart, and that is teachers. And so they they tend to have fairly large networks, I assume. And you also talk about hairdressers, you know, other people who sort of naturally encounter a large number of people just in, you know, in their everyday lives. Do you find that consequential strangers often are of a certain profession?
1: Well, definitely. Yes, definitely hairdressers. Really, you know, I find myself saying to people, oh, you'd love my book. And what really prompts me to say that is when they talk about that, they love meeting people, Hmm. that they love meeting new people, connecting with new things. I mean, being an expat in France, expats tend to be like that. They have to be in order to, because, you know, um, until you find consequential strangers, a place doesn't feel like home. Mm -hmm. So it's the people that you meet in your, you know, in the dog park, in the comings and goings, the butcher, the baker, literally. So yes, definitely hairdressers, lawyers, people who Mm -hmm. need to talk to other people for a living, probably Um, Mm -hmm. It's and it's interesting, and I wanna make this point, you don't need a lot of consequential strangers. There are people like Malcolm Gladwell, in his first book, wrote about Roger Horchow, who is a natural connector. That's what he called them. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But you don't need 5,000 people in your Rolodex. You know, my partner always teases me about I have so many friends on Facebook. They're not that many. And most of them are consequential strangers. Most of our social media people are. Mm -hmm. But it's not about number. It's about sort of wrangling them and knowing they're there for you and feeling free to call on them and for it to be okay to be a casual relationship for some people that's all they want is a casual relationship but there's no pressure in a consequential stranger relationship i say in the book they're like wash and wear relationships you don't have to remember the person's birthday Uh, whereas good friends you do you know, or they might. You know, it was my birthday yesterday. It Might be a little miffed, but I have no idea when Sarah's birthday is. But she wouldn't care if I did. You know, right?
0: Uh huh.
1: Of course, Facebook is helping that a lot too, and you know, social media keeps track of us. But now, now there's very few secrets.
0: Well, there are so many questions that I want to ask you at once here, but let me see if I can, uh, yeah, wrangle my own question here. So, you talk in the book about cultural smarts and mm. uh, cultural carnivores. You know, we're, we, ha- we are talking about some people who are naturally skilled at that, right? You're probably one of yes. those. Yes. Easy, you find it easy to strike up a conversation with people. You're not shy about helping the lady sure. with her coffee. Um, but you also just talk in general about like the the payoff, right? The benefit of having that kind of skill. So, So tell us about that a little bit.
1: Well, let me say one thing before I say about the benefits. It, it doesn't take an outgoing person to do that. And I, and I always need to stress that because people say, Ben, I'm, I'm shy. I can't, I can't talk to everybody the way you do. You don't need to talk to everybody. Sometimes you just need to smile and that'll be enough of a connection. I'll tell you the story about a friend of mine who's chronically depressed. And I was writing the book. And she goes to a gym every day. She talks to nobody at the gym. So I said to her, would you try an experiment? And, and she did it because she was a friend and because she wanted to help me. And I said, it'll help me with a book, but I really have a an, uh, and it might help you too. So I said, when you go to the gym and you're in the locker room, just smile at somebody, just one person, start with one person. And then maybe in a day or two, if that's not killing you, <laughs> and smile. At another the one. The world
0: doesn't fall apart. Right. Right.
1: <laughs> or maybe even say hello. You know that she came back a week later, and it didn't take her a, two or three days. She started talking to people, to her own absolute shock. And guess what? She wasn't as depressed because mm-hmm. you know she was connecting with people. And I'm not saying connection is a cure for clinical depression. I, you know, but it is. It does help. Speaking to somebody else helps you get out of your own head, Mm -hmm. out of your own, I'll use a Yiddish word here, your own mishagash, your craziness that only you can hear inside your head. And it gives you a different perspective. So you don't need to be Melinda Blau to appreciate or seek out consequential strangers. You can do it in such easy ways, and it, it almost sounds silly, but- I'll give you an example. And they always have to be sincere. I have to stress that. Mm. So if you're someplace, you could be on a train, you could be at the gym, you could be walking down the street or in an elevator. And I've done it in all these places. If you really like something that that person is wearing, the scarf, the pair of shoes, or you're curious where it comes from, say, you know, excuse me, but I really like your shoes. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what, only if it's sincere though, you can't do it gratuitously to get that person to look at you. It has to come from you really liking them and wanting to let that person know, not having an agenda that, oh, now we're going to get into a conversation. I've tried this in France and in Paris where the people, with French people, and they're not friendly, but I will ask somebody if i really love i do love shoes and boots and <laughs> and, as, and now especially as i'm getting older i love cool sneakers and if i see somebody <laughs> wearing cool sneakers i will say in my very poor french madame j'aime votre basket. baskets mm-hmm. and she looks at me and she of course knows i'm american because of my terrible accent but she smiles and she goes oh merci and then Most of the time where I live, they speak French and I'll say, (laughs) and then she tells me where she gets the sneakers. And sometimes I'll end up getting the same pair of sneakers, Mm. but it's, it's such a wonderful icebreaker that genuine compliment or just the smile or just the hello, a real question that you need. You know, I remember when I did a a parenting book with a family therapist, Ron Taffel. He used to talk about the need for parents to be able to have, to ask their kids advice or questions about things they really didn't know about. So, of course, what was it? Technology. Mm -hmm. So, for example, ask your kid how to program the VCR because you really don't know how to do it. Well, it's the same thing with a stranger. If, you know, I'm in a strange city and if I don't know where I am, the other person warms when you ask them is this the direction to a militaire? military? You know, there's something you're reaching out. You're reaching across that barrier of the self. Um, Irving Goffman was a very, very in, interesting and influential sociologist. And he talked about personal distance. And he said, below it, I have to try to remember this. Uh, below 18 inches is personal space. That's intimate between that. And four feet, I think it was three or four feet, is, you know, your friends. And 12 feet, which is interesting because it's double social, social distance,
0: distance, right? Yeah,
1: is, is uh, you're keeping your distance. We walk around, we're very aware of that. That's why people feel uncomfortable in an elevator, mm-hmm. why they they look up or look down. Because you're in a very small space. It's too small a space to be with strangers. So that's not a great place to start a conversation with a consequential stranger. Wait till you get off the elevator.
0: <laughs> yeah, everyone's too uncomfortable because yeah, you're you're too
1: tight in there. Right. If you're alone in an elevator, and I've done that, if if there's if there's at least four feet between you, mm-hmm. and it really does seem to work the four feet. If you think about it, next time you go out, four feet is usually the way the distance you are from a dinner conversation. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you start thinking about this, you'll start seeing that when you're in the store, if it's really crowded and people or strangers are getting too close to you, you feel that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not just some nut who says speak to everybody you meet on the street. I <laughs> Get it- right in their face. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But if you do it judiciously and with good intent, I mean, you mentioned kindness. God, we need so much more kindness in this world. And it takes so little to make somebody smile and to be kind, it takes, and it makes you feel even better than the other person. That's the amazing thing. I mean, there's a slew of research on volunteerism and on altruism, and, and talking about the benefits, you know, which is the question you asked me a while back about the benefits of connecting with people, is you you're not as depressed it staves off loneliness you have a reality check for your life and not just for the what am I doing with my IRA not those personal kind of things but the little things you think about you liked to show last night mm-hmm. talk to your dry cleaner and ask him if he saw it uh-huh. right you know and and that's how the more diverse getting back to the cultural carnivores the more diverse your uh, array of consequential strangers, the more you will learn and the more you will be exposed to. That's why hairdressers can talk about anything because they their business involves, they're not, I mean, unless it's a very snooty and I haven't ever been to such a hairdresser, but most hairdressers are in the profession because they like talking to people. So they. they that's why I use them as, uh, as the, the example in the book. But, what their skill is, is that they're interested Mm -hmm. in the person. They genuinely are interested. So it's, it's the real question, the real compliment. That's what is, that's a kind gesture. Mm -hmm. And it also, it fills you up emotionally, intellectually, and I dare say spiritually, because you feel you're part of the bigger universe. And I think that's one of the problems that we have today Uh, especially especially Americans we're so individualistic we forget uh, there's a wonderful quote I can't quote it it's at the beginning of the book an Einstein quote that we're all part of this connected universe it's not just some airy fairy idea it's really a reality and the internet is the manifestation of that reality it really is we we now can see the connections Okay, I want to talk
0: about the internet and uh, social media a little bit more, but I I do want to just throw in here, you know, I've spent a lot of my uh, later years thinking about self-improvement, self-development, behavior modification and especially people who reinvent themselves. Right. And one of the things I want to say to the audience because I think your example of the woman in the gym is is really a good one for that is it doesn't take much. That's what I've been so surprised at in my work with coaching people is that, you know, they take a baby step and it's actually turns out to be quite important and quite profound. So I would advise that to, to people who are thinking about maybe stepping out a little bit outside their circle is give it a shot and just take a baby step, you know, keep your expectations low, but you might be surprised And how how significant it is and what a big immediate impact it has. And, And you talk in the book also about how freeing it is to interact with consequential strangers. And there's one quote in there, which I thought was really cool, from a professor who said meeting people outside of his immediate academic circle gave him a, quote, fancy
1: mind.
0: I just love that.
1: Yes. And that fancy mind is, is, is the cultural, you know, you, the more you absorb, the more you can absorb. The more that you're open, the more the world becomes a more fascinating place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, like with my example of the friend and the smile and this idea of, of reinventing yourself, I think a lot of people, especially if they stay within the confines of just their family, they don't get that outside influence. The, they stay kind of um, insulated, really. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I think that you as a coach, what you're really doing is giving the person a chance to think another way. And you, it's just a little tiny seed. Mm-hmm. It's all small. That's what gets back to my point of it's in the little moments. It's the little kernels of awareness that start to change us because nothing happens overnight, except when well, maybe a bomb. But I mean, you know, most of life unfolds, and you can't really see what you, where you're going or, or what it's doing to you until you have distance. One of my favorite concepts in the book is something that a psychologist, Tony Antonucci devised called the social convoy. And if you think of your life, not as a, a a series of events, but it's really a cavalcade of people. And so you're you're traveling along the, the, the road of life in your car and your social convoy are all these cars around you. Some make the whole journey with you. Those are your intimates, your children, your, your siblings, your parents, very close friends. And some make the journey only part of the way they serve a particular uh, function. So for example, You have a disease and you join a support group Mm -hmm. and then you get better and you get stronger. And then those people are less important. You may not lose. You'll send them Christmas cards, Mm -hmm. but you're not going to see them every day and they'll be replaced by other people where your interests take you. But this idea of the social convoy is wonderful because if you rise above it and you actually imagine your whole social convoy from birth literally to death, it's It's really an amazing thing to see how people have influenced you, and see how sometimes just the littlest comment—you know—it's the joke of in in the graduate, the famous Dustin Hoffman movie where the guy says to him, "Plastics," (laughs) you know, and that's supposed to take him uh, to—you know—that's where his his career path is going to be. But it is those kind of small moments that really affect us in ways that we can't even imagine how they possibly good.
0: Yeah, the image of the cars is an interesting one. There's a section in the book where you talk about networks are like traffic jams. Right. And this idea of networked individualism, you know, some of right. these images are really helpful I think for kind of stepping back and and taking a broader perspective on life, right? And and but right. just in general about this idea of nodes or spider webs or you know how we're all connected or not and then one of the things that I thought was really interesting about that was you can't really see a traffic jam until you zoom out right and see it the way an airplane might see it or a drone might see it and then there's also this image of that we have a loose knit network but it contains dense clusters so also a really cool image yeah talk about that
1: Well, you know, first of all, I have to say, and I was very grateful, and and Karen Fingerman played a big role in this because she's she's an eminent psychologist herself, but she was aware of a lot of the key people like Tony Antonucci, who did this uh, uh, the social convoy and this networked individualism as a sociologist, we we tap sociologists and psychologists mm-hmm. because consequential strangers is of the bigger piece of society, but it's also of the individuals. So that's psychology, and of course, there's a crossover between those two fields anyway. And that's why I like Karen's work because she works in both. Mm. She she's acknowledging both. But Barry Wellman is a fascinating psychologist. Uh, He's at the University of Toronto. He started studying the effects of the internet on society very, very early on in the nineties before we even knew what a a broadband cable was. And one of his earliest studies was of a community in, in Canada that was going to be wired. And this was, the first use of broadband in Canada. And just this little community was gonna be wired. So it was an amazing example of how you could actually look at a little tiny segment of society and see what it did, did to connect the people. Okay. Interestingly, because they were connected through their, I think it was through phones, uh, probably at the door of the phone, but they had each other's emails and they refer to it as the wired community. Those people brought that into their own lives outside of the community as well. They started appreciating this was their network. They could actually see their network for the first time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you're right. Those images are so important. And The the clusters, you know, and I vacillated between seeing in my own life, my social convoy and then the web, because they Mm -hmm. both work. Mm -hmm. The social convoy has the movement of going through life and the web is kind of frozen in a particular time because it looks different at different times of your life. Mm -hmm. So right now I have my Paris consequential strangers. I have my Miami consequentials. They don't know each other. They barely even know about each other. But they're still all part of me and they're in my life. And it's it's reassuring Mm -hmm. that they're all there. But even if I didn't move around as much, if I just had, you know, Sarah at the general store, because I talk in the book about a very, very small town, and I interviewed people who lived in a town of 780 people, and they had consequential strangers. Sure. You know, it was the teachers, it was the hairdressers, it was the cook. And the waitress and the person who ran the general store. And those are the people that made them feel anchored in that town. You know, sometimes they anchor you at an office or, but this was how these people felt held almost. You know, because if you think about it, we have two main hungers. One is our individual hungers. So, you know, food, clothing, shelter, that kind of thing. But we also have, the hunger to belong. And these consequential strangers are a constant reminder that we belong. Mm
0: -hmm. It's one of the things I loved was talking about kind of this human connection through the internet. Because I think a lot of times we tend to take the opposite position that somehow time spent on social media is alienating. And I I think that's not always the case. My husband jokes about, yeah, that he was... uh, interacting with one of his, he calls them my friends on the internet. Then he says, of course, they don't know that they're my friends. (laughs) But That's interesting. But we do have a lot of relationships, right, that are just through the computer.
1: Well, first of all, tell tell him that they are his his consequential strangers. Exactly. And he should share the term with them. Because at (laughs) first people will say, What do you mean? How can a stranger be consequential? I said, exactly. Hmm. (laughs) Think about it. And the minute you start telling them what a consequential stranger is, I made the mistake when I first was promoting the book uh, on radios, shows and TV and whatever. I spent way too much time explaining what a consequential stranger is until somebody said to me, Melinda, they get it. Even in the first (laughs) sentence, we all get it. But I thought I had to give all the variations, you know, but but what's interesting about social media, my mind has changed about social media. Now Mm -hmm. think about this. I wrote the book in 2006. That was the beginning. This sounds far fetched. That was really the early beginning of Facebook and YouTube was 2003, 2004. So 2006, it was just starting. There were maybe a million people on Facebook, not a billion When we were first outlining the book in 2000, we knew that the internet was going to be a force.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So we had a chapter that was called low-tech relationships and high-tech relationships, Mm -hmm. thinking that the ones online were different from the ones IRL in real life. Mm -hmm. Well, I would say within six months of starting to talk about consequential strangers and, and really parse relationships and look at the research, we started realizing, wait a minute, no, online is just going to be a continuation. Maybe some will only be online, Mm -hmm. but most relationships will fluidly migrate back and forth. And that's exactly what's happened. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So there's two things. When when we talk about being alienating, it was more alienating. Studies are now showing that now that, for example, with teenagers, everybody worried, oh, they're not going to learn how to talk to each other. And this is terrible, right? Mm-hmm. While there are still dangers of social media with certain kinds of kids, and those kids are at risk in other situations besides online. Mm. But By now, kids have gotten used to chatting online. Maybe we don't like how they communicate and they say sup instead of what's up, but they're talking to each other. Sure. And it's not alienating because now we've gotten used to it. In the beginning, we hadn't. So the research has even changed. It's not all bad. It's not all good, but it's not all bad. And it seems now, I've recently been researching this for a piece I'm writing. It seems now that more of the research is tipped into it's good. Mm -hmm. It certainly was good during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank God. Right. We had Zoom and we had texting and we had these ways of communicating that weren't IRL because IRL was dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting how how people have also been creative, the arts, for example, but even my grandson, they put on the school play through Zoom. And it was so clever and it required so much creativity. And it was such a wonderful thing to realize that they didn't let the pandemic stop them. And they used the tools, the tools of networked individuals. And really that Barry Wellman saw coming in the late nineties. And he talks about them He calls them our affordances, Hmm. how we can communicate is. And we have all these affordances and they're all different. Hmm. They have benefits and drawbacks, but on a, on a par, I think it's helped us. And you know what? We were talking about um, crossing boundaries. People get nasty and and unkind on this, on, on some sites, but in sites where that's not allowed or where there are people, and I do believe there's people on both sides that genuinely do not like being so polarized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The internet can be a safe place to experiment because you can always leave. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And you could say to somebody, you know, I know you're here because you're trying to understand my point of view. If you had asked me such and such in this way, I might not be a little miffed, but right now I'm a little annoyed at the way you asked, but I'm going to try to educate you and tell you my feeling instead of clicking myself off. Mm -hmm. There are those opportunities on the internet and I I'm hoping that they're happening somewhere.
0: Yeah. And again, I would encourage people because the internet offers you so many options, you know, why not reach out a little bit, expand your horizons, you know, right. follow somebody on Twitter that you wouldn't normally follow. Right. Go read some, you know, ultra liberal blog if that's not right. your bag, you know, that that you can do that. Now you have the opportunity to do that. What did you if, call
1: them again? Accordances? Affordances. A f f O-R-D-A-N-C-E-S. That's really cool,
0: right? I really
1: like that. He's a fascinating guy. I mean, I don't know what he's up to lately, but there were certain people that really, uh, Granovetter was wonderful. Mm. And these guys are really famous and they were so generous with their time. And interestingly, they were also really happy that I was writing about it and that I was going to take some of this stuff with it, which at this point was not at all in popular press it now people are are writing more about it but it, it was an amazing as a journalist to find something no journalist had written about
0: well it really struck me when i read the first article that i read of yours it was really an aha moment for me so i yeah i'm not sure we're we're still digging into this quite as deeply as as oh, we maybe. could there, there's there's a lot there well, our hour has flown by. As Oh, my I God, it's an hour? Yes, <laughs> yeah. it is. But yeah, thank you so much for your time, Melinda. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience? Any uh, websites you want to refer them to or any resources that you uh, suggest that they look at?
1: Well, um, I have my own website, melindablau.com. And I, I blog on there, but I also write a lot on Medium mm-hmm. where you can find me at Medium, just Google Melinda Blau at Medium and you'll find me. And uh, Medium is a wonderful uh, online publishing platform. And these days, sometimes I write about consequential strangers and sometimes I write about aging and I write about sort of whatever the, the mood strikes me. In fact, as a result of this, I'm gonna write about using the internet to to cross barriers. So uh, I do hope to um, that you reach out to me if you're listening. And I always answer emails.
0: Well, that's lovely. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure.
1: Thank you. And it's been wonderful knowing you. Thank you.
0: Thanks, everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.